Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness. Every week, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, honey, what is it? On today's, what is it? On today's, what is it? Ooh, didn't even see that intro coming, honey. I'm trying to switch it up. Make sure you're on your toes, honey. You know I love a good intro. But on today's episode, we are joined by Nora McKendrick, where I ask her, why are toxic products still for sale? Welcome back to Getting Curious, everyone. So you'll remember, and maybe you won't, but hopefully you listened to this episode, when we spoke to Tequila Chongyapa about environmentalism earlier this year, we talked about consumer choice briefly. This week's guest studies the evolution of consumer choice as America's go-to defense against chemical and environmental harm, and how the government and industries have designed the systems this way. Nora McKendrick is an associate professor of sociology at Rutgers University. Her research and teaching explores environmental health, gender, food, consumer studies, and science and technology studies. Nora, how are you? I'm fine. Thank you. I'm having a good day. How are you? (laughs) I am doing good. And you know, people can't like see the podcast video, but I just have to say your gorgeous striking silver hair color is so fucking pretty Thank you. and normally I wait till the end of the conversation to talk about people's hair and how pretty it is but like today I just have to say this hair this side part it's serving I'm obsessed tell your hairdresser <laughs> they're doing a great job because it just looks I will. so good I will pass that along thank you just flying colors <laughs> so good so we've spoken with a number of guests about toxic exposure through everyday consumption can you remind us though how many chemicals and toxins are we likely to be exposed to in a mm. lifetime well, that's a very good question. I've heard estimates like if you, you know, take a shower and use basic cosmetics, you're exposed to about 128 chemicals, and then you have all this stuff in your furnishings and your food. The Centers for Disease Control has a study where they use biomonitoring. So this tests your blood, urine, breast milk for traces of chemicals, and they measure 300 chemicals. And so you can, in theory, your body can contain traces of all 300 of those chemicals. So I pick a safe number and I say it's several hundred that we are exposed to, or that at least we can measure and know that we were exposed to in our lifetimes. The Toxic Substances Control Act is responsible for overseeing something like 87,000 chemical substances. Now, not all of those are in use today. But that just gives you an idea of how many chemicals are out there that the EPA, it's largely the EPA is responsible for overseeing. Which was just largely gutted of all of its like oversight powers from the Supreme Court earlier this year. Yes. And I'm still learning how that's affecting climate change and climate change regulation. I'm sure it's going to have an effect on chemical regulation, but I I haven't sat back to really understand what implication that will have. Fun. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I don't feel optimistic. So going back to that EPA, Mm -hmm. they have oversight over the Toxic Chemical Control Act. Yes. Toxic Substances Control Act. So that was created in 1976 and it was revised in 2016. And it was revised in 2016 in some, in some good ways. But then of course, what happened in 2016 Trump was elected. We had a Trump administration taking over the government and the EPA. He appointed Scott Pruitt, who had sort of made his career off of suing the EPA. Yes. And then it was either Pruitt or his successor that appointed Nancy Beck, who is a lobbyist for the American Chemical Council very friendly with industry, very anti-regulation. And they made a mess of things. And the folks that Biden has appointed within the EPA are still cleaning that up. So the new legislation is promising, but it's going to take us a while to really see what it can do because it was more or less rolled back and kind of put on pause during the Trump administration. And what are the harms of the chemical exposures and burdens that it puts on the body? There are several. So it impacts our neurodevelopment. There's a higher risk of cancer, including in children and young people. So uterine and vaginal cancer, liver cancer, breast cancer, brain cancer, testicular cancer, and thyroid cancer, reduced fertility, lower birth weight, impaired immune function, 
Oh, and also diabetes. Yeah. I think that there's a relationship between toxic exposures and diabetes, so metabolic disorders. And is there anywhere in the world where people are living toxin-free? No. Even in the Arctic, so a place that's very far removed from industrial production. So if we take, say, blood and urine samples from folks living in the Arctic, we'll find that sometimes they're body burdens of certain chemical substances are much higher than people living further south. And that's because of how air and water move towards the poles and carry with them toxic chemicals that stay in the environment, get into the food chain. Because they're like in northern Canada and northern like Finland and like Lapland and like Scandinavia and stuff and like Serbia, right? Right. So they're living in the far north. I can't believe people are just like out there with like the polar bears, just like really like getting exposed to toxins. But And then like, how does someone's gender, race or class affect the number of like toxic exposures? I would imagine Mississippi's drinking water crisis or like Flint. Like I would imagine there's a lot of environmental racism. There's a lot of like class stuff. And even like with gender, if you're like, you know, this is like a little bit, you know, beyond the binary, but like anyone who's interacting more frequently with like deodorants, creams, makeups, Mm -hmm. like anything that you're like slathering on your skin on like an everyday basis. Yeah. When it comes to gender, race, and class, race and ethnicity matters because it influences where you're most likely to live because of residential segregation and because of where really toxic polluting either hazardous waste sites or polluting industries are located. They are predominantly located in residential spaces that are majority black and brown and and or low income. So if you're living in a contaminated community, then your exposure is much higher than somebody living, say, near a park and very far away from a polluting facility. And So that's going to be someone who is more affluent and more likely to be white and highly educated and able to move and not be in those highly polluted spaces. When it comes to gender, gender influences your occupation. So what you're doing, so whether you're working in um, a hair or nail salon, whether you're working as a farm worker and exposed to pesticides and or working with heavy industry But gender is also relevant because, as you mentioned, it's what your personal care routines and how many products you're using. Now, we're starting to see that change, at least among younger people. I'm seeing more and more younger people using cosmetics and beauty products. And, you know, gender doesn't seem to matter as much anymore. But historically, it's really depended. Like if you are a woman, you are using more cosmetics, using lipstick, using, you know, eyeliner and eyeshadow and you're dyeing your hair, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think about, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis, incredible entertainer. Mm -hmm. I also remember that Activia commercial and like a gorgeous billion probiotics, honey. So let's say you're in a yogurt section of a grocery store Mm -hmm. and you want to avoid toxins in the products you buy and the container it's packaged in. How is this like an example of like precautionary consumption? So if you're standing in the aisle of the grocery store and you're worried about pesticides, you're worried about artificial colors and flavors, you're worried about the product packaging because you know that plastic is an endocrine disruptor, then you're looking at a product that's basically allowed to be sold on the shelves, but it's up to you as the individual to apply your own standard of safety to pick what sits well with you. If you've shopped for yogurt recently, you know that it's a bewildering landscape of choice. We now have dairy. We have non-dairy. We have no sugar added. We have sugar added. We have different kinds of sugar, different flavors, and then also different packaging. We have the plastic container, and we have the glass container, and we have the ceramic container now. So it's really overwhelming. The plastic container arrived on store shelves. I don't know when exactly, but plastic is a popular material for packaging our processed foods because it preserves foods really well. No one really has evaluated whether that was a great choice for our health. So it's convenient, it's cheap, and industry likes it. And consumers can, you know, they can handle it too. 
So are you saying that cheap and convenient things could possibly lead to like, <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. That's, I get it. That's so we're doing something like all the time that kind of affects everyone because it's yes. cheap and convenient, but we don't really no. know all the effects of like what it could do. No. And that's the thing is, is we often spend a lot of time thinking about what food we're going to eat, you know, what things we're going to consume, put on our body or put inside our body in terms of food. We don't often think about the packages that that food comes in. And those packages we're learning are just as important pathways of toxicity as the product itself. So plastic is a powerful endocrine disruptor. So it messes with our hormonal systems. And no one really asks consumers for their permission to use such a compound in yogurt production. We don't have a lot of choice over that. We have more choice over what kind of yogurt we want. But the yogurts themselves get tested, but we don't understand like... An organic yogurt, in order to be certified organic, the farm that produces the dairy, it's going to be inspected every year, a couple times a year by the National Organic Program. And that's out of the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture. And they have a set of guidelines that producers have to follow in order to be certified organic. And once the farm passes that, and then they have you know follow-up monitoring, but it's not that frequent um, because it depends on staff and access. So they have to follow those guidelines But then that milk is sent to a production facility. It's turned into yogurt. It's put into a container. There's no testing going on. There's no testing to see, are there any pesticide residues left over in that milk? No one is testing that unless it's an advocacy organization that's wondering, oh, is organic yogurt really organic? And I was just looking this up yesterday and there was a study um, in the last year or two where they found that indeed organic yogurt is organic. So there's not a lot of fraud or a lot of, you know, bait and switch going on. That's cool. Yeah. I was like, oh, okay, here's a bit of good news. I'll take Uh, that. I love that for us. But like, it's kind of just operating off like good faith and like access because like, hopefully like, you know, you just don't know. And then it's like serial numbers and like, hopefully, you know, if there's like a recall, like there's kind of. Right. Once that milk is used in production, it's used for a yogurt, there's no testing going on. And likewise, the containers that are used to hold the yogurt, those aren't being tested for their safety. It's consumer advocacy groups or environmental advocacy groups that say, hey, wait a minute, is what kind of plastic is being used? Or this yogurt smells a little funny. I mean, this happened in the case with cereal, um, where the cereal bags were smelling sort of weird when consumers opened them. And eventually the producer took the cereal off the shelf, but no one actually, like there was no FDA in there testing this cereal bag to see what was in it. It was the environmental working group that got a hold of these bags and tested them and told us what was creating the smell that consumers didn't like. So like in the yogurt section, this proverbial yogurt section you got like mm-hmm. no sugar sugar added like mm-hmm. dairy free mm-hmm. c- right. coconut derived like th- yeah. you know all the like organic non-organic i'm sure there's like some natural thrown in there but like if you don't just like pick whichever catches your eye first like who's taking the time to do this because mm-hmm. like then i just want some fucking yogurt you know So precautionary consumption means you're going to read those labels, you're going to look at the product and you're going to decide, yeah, this is what I want to avoid and this is what I want in my product and make your own decision based on what you feel comfortable with and your own standard of safety. Now, that standard of safety could be and is most likely being influenced by environmental health and consumer advocacy groups that are getting the message out there that our everyday products do have a lot of toxic substances in them and that there isn't a lot of regulatory oversight over our food and consumer products. And some classic like historical examples of that are like the clock painter ladies who like painted with like lead paint. A bunch of them got like really intense cancers, got super duper sick or like the whole Teflon thing or like Aaron Brockovich, favorite movie of all time. There's a lot of these examples through history where like, through lack of regulation and then people getting sick, it led to some sort of regulation. But then it's like, how does 
mainstream things and other things still kind of fall outside of the cracks and, you know, reaches of regulation, which then to me begs the question, why doesn't the government just make a certain standard where like mm-hmm. everything is organic? Everything doesn't have yeah. pesticides. Like, is it is just like capitalism and like, you know, that is it just is that? Is that pretty much it? <laughs> that's like that's the short answer. It's capitalism. But can I go back to something that you said? Because that's really important because you were mentioning people using lead paints and people living in contaminated communities. Precautionary consumption is about our everyday fairly low level exposures to toxic substances. I mean, that adds up over time and it matters. But if we're talking about where you live or what job you have, those exposures, that's the real deal because you're getting a big dose of exposure. That's like OSHA. Yes. Yeah. They're responsible for protecting workers, but those protections have problems. But this is like consumers. There's lots of times where people use stuff and you don't think it's a big deal. And then it's like, you know, they used to like prescribe like pregnant women cigarettes because it kept your baby like fucking less big. And then you wouldn't like hurt your fucking, I don't know. It's just like, I think I heard that in the 30s. It was like a thing. What protections can precautionary consumption offer consumers and what are its limits? One thing I was thinking about is like, what if you aren't able to read or like what if you don't Mm -hmm. have access it's like food deserts we do know that if you give somebody a diet of all organic food and they're just eating organic food we can measure that difference in their body so their internal pesticide burden goes down it doesn't disappear because these things are still in our general environment and they're still in the body from previous exposures But it makes a measurable difference. But that really depends on someone eating all organic all the time. So it it can have a measurable impact. But most of us don't live in that kind of bubble of organic food. And it's more expensive. It can be harder to access, although it's getting easier all the time. And it depends on knowing what to look for. There are lots of people for whom reading a product label or trying to decide like what's the difference between something that is non-GMO and something that's organic is totally overwhelming. They don't have time. They've got bigger things to think about. So they're not thinking about those things. So being able to practice precautionary consumption is a privilege. It requires that you have time, requires that you have something called consumer literacy. So you can look at a product label and make sense of it and kind of understand what it means. And that takes time to kind of learn like, well, like what's the difference between an ingredient label and the nutrition facts label? What is USDA organic and what does that mean? So people who can do that really effectively, it's a form of privilege in my view. So then you argue that precautionary consumption isn't just filling the void of chemical deregulation. It's like an intentional part of the process, which is giving like American, like rugged individualism. And it also is giving like every person for themselves. And it's also giving like widespread structure versus like an individual. Like it's important to understand like the difference, you know? No, it makes sense. It makes me think you're a sociologist because we talk about that all the time. Like that's our thing. You are hereby, like, granted the title of sociologist. Yeah. Honorary. So that happens to me sometimes when I interview academic people. Like, but I do think, like, as hairstylists, like, we talk to so many different people that we do give you, like, multifacetedness. You know, like, we just... Sure. And I've been really inspired, like, with JV and hair, like, how I can try to, like, push the conversation forward, like, from within the industry. But, Mm -hmm. like, it keeps making me think about why we don't have more regulation to keep things cleaner for all of our consumers in the first place. Yes. Like who gets rich off of people not having access to like all the best food, all Mm -hmm. the best beauty things. Like, I think I don't like the answer. Like I, I can already feel it. Yeah. I wish we didn't need precautionary consumption. What motivated me to get into this work was realizing like, I would like to go into a store and not really have to read the label. I would like to look at that yogurt and say, you know what, I feel like key lime today, not vanilla. And that's like the level of, of engagement I have with that label. But it's not like that. Maybe you have experienced this with JVN hair. It is more expensive to source sustainably. And, you know, you... You have to use different suppliers 
and that can be complicated. So that price gets passed on to consumers and we are accustomed, especially in the United States, to having fairly affordable food and not spending too much money on our food. And if you do spend a lot of money on your food, you're sort of labeled as kind of bougie or you know snobby or upper class. And that's because it does require a lot of money to eat organic and to eat natural foods. But ultimately, yeah, we should be able to walk into any store, whether we are buying a cosmetic product or we're buying our food or our furnishings and feel like it's, it's more or less going to be safe and good for our health and good for the environment too. Well, you really hit the nail on the head though when you said that like the the cost gets passed down to the consumer and that's a way that like Sally Krawcheck, when we uh, got to interview her a few years ago, it's like this economy is and has always been wired to like punch down. Like it mm-hmm. always passes the buck yeah. like down and down and down. We're talking about a price of something going up. So that cost is being push down to the consumer because they have to pay more. But if we don't have a safe consumer landscape or you know food supply, the cost gets pushed down to the consumer. It's not necessarily monetary right away, but it's like the cost in terms of health and poor environmental quality and you know overflowing landfills and health problems. And so those problems don't go back to the producers. The producers are not held accountable for those kinds of costs that consumers are bearing. And not all consumers bear it in the same way. I mean, more privileged consumers can shop their way out of this problem. Right. So since 1900, it's a long time ago, honey, 122 years ago. Yeah. What's the story of chemical production been in the U.S.? So since 1900, people were mainly concerned about heavy metals at that time. I was giving lead. Lead, arsenic. Yeah, yeah the arsenic. Yeah, arsenic. Yes. <laughs> Not good. You don't want the heavy metals. <laughs> so, but what happened since 1900? Like, how has, like, the regulatory okay. framework evolved? Like, going along, 1900, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so in 1900, there was no FDA. There were no regulations governing the safety of our food supply and our consumer products. So this is a time when you might find like things like sawdust and bread. You might find jams that aren't jam. They're just basically sugar and coloring. And there were also problems with how medicines were being manufactured. So sometimes medicines would be manufactured with the wrong ingredients or in unhygienic conditions. And so people were getting sick. So there was this one individual, Harvey Wiley. He was really concerned about this. He was concerned about all the new products that were coming out. You know, no one really knew if they were safe for our health. And he really pushed this Pure Food and Drug Act, which was passed in 1906. And that eventually led to the formation of the FDA. The FDA was formed in 1930, and it was really to implement with more force the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, but it never really was able to do so. Industry interests from the get-go have always had greater power than government regulation. And that was really disappointing to me when I was doing research on the history of this for my book was that, oh, so it's not a story of like everything was really good and government was really strong. And then, you know, maybe in the 70s or 80s, they rolled this back. It turns out it was never really very good. Like lobbyists have been fucking it up forever. Like special interests have been fucking it up forever. Forever. Like tale as old as time. Yep. Yeah, as old as the 1900s. <laughs> yeah. So we've really never had a system that's done a great job of looking out for consumer safety. And so it's been an issue for people who are concerned about public health. Mothers, mothers were organizing in the early 1900s through the 30s and 40s and 50s around having safer consumer products, safer mm-hmm. foods. And in the post-war period, that's when you saw this huge explosion in chemical production because of all the innovation that was happening during World War II. And government just was not set up to look at all of these new chemicals that were being produced and used in consumer products. And then in 1976, when TSCA, so the Toxic Substances Control Act, was passed, They grandfathered in something like 60,000 chemicals that were already in use and said, 
said, these new rules are onerous on industry. So if you already have a chemical in production, you're excused from this legislation. What's really weird for me hearing you say like when Tosco is passed, when I think Tosca, I think Michelle Kwan, bronze medal, yeah. 2004, <laughs> world championships. Like I'm just not used to like, so between 1930 and 76, like shit still kind of like not super. And also I would argue that like Aaron Brockovich would say like in her book, like Superman's not coming to save you. A lot of these like regulations, like it comes from good intentions. It's to give the appearance that it's like getting safer and it might make it safer, but like mm-hmm. we could always do oh, better. Yeah. And because of the special interests that do lobby against like a more robust implementation of a lot of these things, like, and they just take so long, like to and, like implement yeah. because of like federal leadership changes and stuff, like which you saw like 2016, like that stuff gets passed, but then Trump puts it on ice. We also got to learn about that in in an episode about disability politics, about like how like there was a lot of disability legislation and stuff that had been like negotiated under Nixon, but then Ford was like, "Eh, I want to rethink all this. So just like the leadership changes can like derail a lot of this stuff because it's such like large systems to implement. And then who pays the price is like the people who have to like consume this shit because you got to eat. You know, you want to wash your yeah. wash your face or whatever, like run your car or whatever the stuff that you're doing. So, okay, now let's say that a product has been like deemed toxic, like a type of couch foam or something. Mm-hmm. Who would like who would make that call that this thing can't be used anymore? It's technically up to the Environmental Protection Agency, the EPA, to make that call. What typically happens is that advocacy groups, so environment, public health, consumer advocacy groups will flag some research or some new science that has come out suggesting that this compound is problematic and put pressure on industry and the EPA to do something about it. So if the EPA decides it needs to look at this compound more carefully, it still has several years before it's going to act. So it's going to put it through a risk assessment process, and this takes some time. Meanwhile, that product is still out on the market, still being sold, and consumers are still buying it. Manufacturers are still using the compound in their manufacturing process. So it can take like two, five, or more years for the EPA to make a call and say, this substance is no longer allowed to be used. So basically the product is still out. Like once the EPA would say, hey, this isn't safe anymore. It's not like some other body comes in and like clears it off the market. Or like if it was like a food recall, sometimes they're like, they'll call that stuff. But in this case, if it's like a couch foam, the couches are still out there. Yeah, so if the EPA decides that a compound is too hazardous to be used in consumer products, then industry can't use it anymore in their manufacturing. Now they can ask for a delay. They can say, we need more time to find an alternative and they can ask for more time before the EPA starts to, I guess, get really, really upset that they're continuing to use it. But in actual fact, what ends up happening is that these advocacy groups are very good at getting the message out and they're already pressuring retailers and manufacturers to stop using these compounds And there's consumer pressure coming from people saying, you know what, I don't want this in my couch foam. Please take it out. And so by the time the EPA makes a decision, that compound is maybe not being used in a couch anymore. Now, not to say that like a really educated consumer might say, okay, I don't want this flame retardant in my couch foam. So I'm going to get rid of my couch and I'm going to buy a couch that does not have it. Well, where does that disposed couch go? It goes into donations. And so that goes into someone else's home. And so it doesn't disappear. Even if it goes into the landfill, that foam is decomposing and it is getting into our air, our soil and our water. And that's one reason we find these compounds up in like in the Arctic is because they, they're transported up there. It never really disappears. And people who are relying on donations are kind of at risk of some of the older crumbling foams that have these problematic flame retardants in them. And also, if you think about that, like, it's not like landfills have like a barrier between the garbage and the ground. And as you just keep heaping more stuff on top of it, like it seeps down, it's going to eventually make its way to groundwater. It's going to like expand. I don't know exactly how that works, but it seems like pretty, I think I can imagine like how that stuff 
would cycle in that world or in this world because <laughs> we live in it. Yeah, that's fun. But here's the thing. You're in the EU. How might your experience as a shopper or a consumer differ than like in the United States? Mm. Well, your experience as a shopper is you're still encountering labels. You still have organic certification. You still have some toxic substances and endocrine disruptors in your products, but you don't have as many as are in the United States. And that's because as a shopper in the EU, you can be sure there's a regulatory body and a regulatory infrastructure that is much more precautionary. And by precautionary, I'm referring to the precautionary principle. That's It's a policy ethic that says, if there is a threat of harm to health or the environment, we will move to restrict an activity until we can prove it's safe. So the European Union starts off with the assumption that something might be harmful and it has to be proven to be safe. In the United States, it's the opposite. It's assumed to be safe until someone can bring forward enough evidence to show that it's not. So in the European Union, you know that there are more regulations governing your food and food quality and all of the chemicals that go into your consumer products. So you're exposed to fewer toxic chemicals. You know, sometimes, especially those of us who study environmental policy, we look at the EU as like, everything is perfect. Everything is rosy. And it's not. I mean, industry has an influence there. They've really slowed down moving on regulating endocrine disruptors. So these compounds that mess with our hormones. And that's a problem. But in comparison to the United States, they are doing a much better job of prioritizing human health and environmental health. So for you as like a fierce, like, you know, researcher of all of this, like at your house, do you fucks with Tupperware? Or are you like, I put my shit in glass and like only fucking glass. Like, I don't trust that shit. Well, I mean, I would love to just only have glass. But I think this is what motivated me to do the work. It's like, yeah, I would love to have glass, but I mean, I have kids at home. And when they were little, you're not going to have glass containers. They're breaking shit all over the place. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. They're going to break it. They're going to break it. Also, it's heavy. If you're carrying your lunch, it's heavy. And the stainless steel is also great, but it's really expensive. So Tupperware is cheap. If you lose it, you can affordably replace it. So I do use Tupperware at home. But when I use it, I'm like, ugh. But I will not microwave in plastic. Just never oh, do that. Don't, don't yes. microwave in plastic. Don't put hot liquids or hot foods. You know, if you're cooking and you're putting something in a Tupperware container, wait for it to cool down. Don't put hot stuff in plastic because when you warm it up, that's when you have like the, the leaching. leaching of these. Yes. Yeah. But then I also just saw in this one thing about like food poisoning, which like different, but it also said that like for the like bacteria growing on shit that you don't, because I always like would let shit cool down before I put it in the fridge. Right. But then they said that that actually doesn't keep it any cleaner and you could actually get it more fucked up from like letting it sit out forever. But for the leaching thing, it's like, just like, don't put it in scolding hot. Like, like definitely like, right. Like don't do scolding hot, but like maybe don't let it sit out for like three hours. So you don't get like some right. fucking like botulism shit. And then you don't want that shitting your no. brains out for like the next, you know, can't even, uh, never mind. No. I'm not going to say that out loud. <laughs> My filter worked. That was weird. Um, so, <laughs> Then, like, our recent guest, Michelle Pfeiffer, not to name drop. <laughs> Sorry about it. <laughs> Hair flips. Um, I did have Michelle Pfeiffer on, and I also did get to ask her about what lies beneath. And it was major. Okay? It was, like, a really fun experience. If you haven't listened to that episode, we're obsessed. So, she founded Henry Rose, which is her, like, gorgeous perfume line. And it's cool because it's, like, transparent with its ingredients. And that's kind of cool because, like, that, like, Personal Care Act, like, said that the word fragrance could encompass, like, up to, like, 3,000 ingredients, like, many of which are endocrine disruptors and, like, not good. Mm -hmm. And she's really taken, like, a cool like stand against that. And a lot of it had to do with her kids, like when she had kids and that was like what was her kind of impetus. So why is parenthood often the moment people learn about toxic exposure? When people are learning about toxic exposure, I'm mainly going to talk about cisgender women. So women learn early in life that they have the capacity to have a baby, to become pregnant. And what their body is exposed to exposes the fetus to the same thing. So, you know, we're taught at a young age, like 
don't drink, don't smoke, all of these things could harm the future child. So when people are planning a family or when they do become pregnant, it brings that into sharp relief. Like it's like, oh, okay, I really need to remember that I'm a kind of conduit for toxins. And I mean, that's unfortunate because fathers' bodies matter too. So what fathers are exposed to matters, but we put a lot of attention on women because they're the ones who are pregnant and then are breastfeeding. Which really is fucked up. Because, like, when I think about the amount of drugs I've done and all the stuff I've done, like, if I wanted to, like, parent a child, I'm pretty sure... I bet my sperms are, like, 27-headed. Like, I bet they are so messed up because of all the... Like, I just... I've done a lot of drugs. I really have. Like, Mm. it's been... It was Mm -hmm. a hard road there for a minute. And, like, I don't even know what's going on. And if you have a penis, you should care about your fucking sperms. Absolutely. But because of cultural ideas about whose health matters for children, we've really focused mainly on mothers. And we're only learning now about how important father's health is and how healthy sperm are produced. And so as it turns out, when it comes to healthy sperm, it depends on what a man is doing like three months before conception can impact the health of sperm. But do we see those messages for fathers? No, we do not. But the CDC now recommends that anyone of reproductive age, anyone who could become pregnant and who is not on birth control, abstain from drinking. Uh And so maybe they've updated that in like the last year, but that was a public health uh, message that they had for a while. So this is all to say that women become responsibilized, like really young to know that their bodies affect the health of their future child. So when women are planning a pregnancy or become pregnant or after the birth of a child, they feel like everything they do impacts the health of the child and thereby impacts that child's future. So whether they develop cancer later in life, whether they develop a learning disability in terms of eating habits, whether they become like junk food maniacs or whether they love like roasted broccoli and et cetera and kale. Yeah. Kale's a big one. <laughs> that kale. So that seems pretty explanatory on like why then this like precautionary consumption can often become a gendered experience because of yeah. like family structure and like societal pressure, the patriarchy, et cetera. So that that totally makes sense. But then, like, what about this whole, like, idea of, like, the pure, vulnerable child? Like, how does that idea right. and that, like, cultural dominance fit into this conversation? So we have this cultural idea that when a child is born, it is pure. And only its external environment and typically the actions of its mother, although fathers matter too, can mess it up and threaten this purity. But we know now from doing tests of cord blood, fetuses are exposed to chemicals in utero. So we are not so pure when we're born. But there is this idea and women internalize this. So I've spoken to women who say like, when my child is born, they're pure and they're perfect. And I have to be careful not to mess this up. And they're vulnerable. And I mean, that the vulnerability is supported by research. Infants are vulnerable to environmental chemicals. Infancy is a time of rapid growth, rapid cell development, and a lot can get messed up from exposure to toxic substances. And mothers increasingly, and fathers too, increasingly are aware of how these chemicals can impact child development. So they want to avoid that. But the idea that that the child is pure and can only really be messed up by its environment and its mother, I mean, that's really putting a lot of the burden and a lot of the blame on mothers. And it's messed up in another way too, in that we're seeing with the restriction of reproductive rights, that the prioritizing of the fetus over the mother also means that women can be prosecuted for what they're doing during pregnancy. We've seen it in the U.S. We've seen it in Latin America, Central America. I mean, we've, but yeah. also in the U.S., like really again, seeing it in the U.S. And if you don't know about that, there's like this woman in Oklahoma who was accused of doing meth when she was pregnant. And then they fucking threw her in jail. And this was like before the reversal of Dobbs. We have seen this happen. And it, it's also can be litigated a lot in like child custody things, which also, as we've learned, can, you know, have you wound up in all sorts of other things. And then... How can race and class shape someone's ability to participate in precautionary consumption? It can affect their ability to access these products. So we know that if you're living in an urban area, so I've done research in New York City where you know you can access spaces that 
allow you to purchase organic things. And sometimes at a fairly affordable prices. I was really surprised at how, you know, like there are now stores like, say, Target and major grocery stores that, and Walmart that have a fairly affordable price point for organic foods. But if you live in a more rural area, you're going to have a harder time getting your hands on those things. Or if you're kind of limited to one neighborhood and you have like one grocery store in your neighborhood. So in the neighborhood I live in, in New York City, like all the organic things and all the so-called natural things, the, the prices are just jacked up. They're really expensive. So I have the flexibility. I can go somewhere else. But if you don't, then you're spending a lot more. You just avoid those products altogether. So that's how sort of race and class can can fit into this. But also it's like the WIC programs, like a lot of like the welfare assistance programs, like for help for accessing food. Like if you read the fine print, like they don't cover organic foods. So even if you wanted to like make more precautionary consumer choices, like a lot of times assistance programs like won't even cover those because of the way that racism and classism is like baked into. Because it's like, well, if you need like assistance and like, why are you spending it on organic? Like that's a little more expensive. It's so fucked up. Well, it's messed up because the message is also that, you know, you should talk to your child and you should read to your child. And there's all this interference in mothers' lives to make sure that that child grows up to be healthy. But then when it comes to buying organic things, it's like, well, no, sorry, the benefit won't cover that. That's just, that's frivolous. So WIC does not cover organic foods, but food stamps will. So SNAP benefits will. But if you're on WIC and food stamps, it's not covering your whole grocery bill anyway. So you are not going to spend any extra money on those things um, unless you you somehow can. You can make it work. I have talked to women who have been able to do that, but only with like a lot of time and a lot of work. Yeah. And like, meanwhile, you know, we bail out like airlines, banks, fucking stock market. Mm -hmm. And then like people who like really need to feed their families are like getting nickel and dimed, like, and can't put food on the table And not because they're not working. It's because things have been so inflated and so outpriced. And like access to those things have been made even harder to get. So we hate that story. So when we spoke with Sabrina Strings about racialized fat phobia, she talked about a quote slender ideal. And this concept also appears in your work. What does a slender ideal have to do with precautionary consumption? I found that um, women became aware of precautionary consumption and label reading. It's usually when they were in college or they finished college and they wanted to, you know, have better health or lose weight. It was really when their entree point into dieting culture and they had control over what they were eating. They were moving out of a dorm. They were cooking for themselves for the first time. And they were like, you know what? I want to lose weight. I want to be slender. I want to be slim. So they learned to um, read a label. And that skill is important for precautionary consumption. So it was sort of like the, like the gateway drug. It's like dieting culture is kind of the gateway drug in some ways to precautionary consumption because you learn to read a label and really think about what's going into a product. And so, you know, you're thinking maybe about sugar and calories and fat, and then that leads to thinking about, okay, well, what preservatives are in there? Um, are there pesticide residues? And the list goes on and on. How has that affected like consumerism of highly processed foods? Like, has that also like given more rise to like less good options for people? Sure, because diet culture teaches people to look at the label for certain things. They're looking at sugar, they're looking at calories, they're looking at fat. And the marketing responds to that. So we see an increase in these processed foods that have labels right on the front, like only, you know, 100 calories only or no sugar added. And so that creates a whole opportunity for food processors to create new products for people or even just brand them in a different way to draw new consumers in who are really sort of like attuned to these things like like low fat or low calorie. Yeah, that makes sense. I remember talking to my dad about this one time and he was like, you know, you might say that a Big Mac isn't the healthiest thing, but like if that's the only thing you can eat, the Big Mac's going to keep you alive. So what does like choosing the right option look like if your choices are limited? If your choices are limited, choosing the right option is about what you have control over. So if you don't have a lot of access to organic foods, if you don't have access to a farmer's market, well, then you're shopping around 
what's available to you. So maybe you're saying, okay, fine, I won't choose fast food. I'll make this food myself. It may not be organic. It may not be from Whole Foods or any of those fancy boutique stores, but I'll make my own food. And then that way I know exactly what's going into it. Where I live in New York City, I noticed that people shop a lot at these really informal markets. There's like these pop-up markets where people are selling all kinds of fresh fruits and vegetables at a much lower price than you would find in the grocery store. So in that case, then you're choosing to shop there. The food is fresh, it's, it's affordable, and you're using that in your cooking and in your meal prep. And then maybe if you are a label reader and you're really concerned about artificial colors, artificial flavors, then you're picking the option that has less of those things that you don't want. So you still do have a lot of choice, but it is not this kind of like pristine precautionary consumer landscape that you would find in, say, a more affluent neighborhood where you have multiple stores and lots of sort of like boutique organic options for shoppers. What companies and institutions have stepped in to fill the government's void? And how do they help consumers navigate what's safe? We've seen environmental advocacy groups step in. And so one of the groups that's really active is the Environmental Working Group. We love EWG. Yeah, so they have the EWG Verified Program, which I think you were talking about Henry Rose I'm pretty sure Henry Rose is EWG verified. And they that's are. a really high standard of safety. And I mean, it's the kind of standard that you would want the FDA to use and the USDA for the EWGs like dirty dozen list. So these are fruits and vegetables that have the highest pesticide residues, either in terms of the number of different pesticides that are used or the amount of residue that's on an item. So EWG is kind of stepping in where government is failing. We also have an organization called Mind the Store, which is part of, I think it's now part of Toxic Free Future. What they do is they go in to retailers like, say, Target, and they say, look, here's the problem with toxic chemicals and consumer products. We want you to voluntarily reduce the number of products in your store that have these things and opt for better options. And that's shown some success. I, I know they're working on Amazon too, um, but you know that's a much bigger marketplace, but they have had some success at getting stores to not just sell more green products, but actually take some of those more harmful products off the shelf and not sell them in the first place. I mean, we really do rely on these organizations, these advocacy organizations to keep an eye on our consumer landscape and our food system. Without them, we would have really very little idea of what toxic substances are in our food and consumer products. I like to think that as like a genderqueer person, I'm like, you know, very anti-binary. If one side of the equation or binary is like government regulation and the other one is like, uh, precautionary consumption, it seems like there's a lot more emphasis on like precautionary consumption, at least in the United States, than there is in like government regulation. And so obviously I don't think, you know, this could be my, my, my rural Midwesternness coming out, but it's like, you know, my dad would say like, well, look at the post office. Like, you want to let the government do everything for you? But then it's like, well, you know, it's a little bit deeper. You got like some systematic shit there and like it's not really fucking funded right. What could a stronger regulatory system look like that could make it a little bit more balanced and could keep us a little safer? I struggled with this question a lot when I was writing my book because I thought, you know, is government regulation really going to work? Like in practical terms, like can we put all of our eggs in that basket and say regulation, that's the way to go? And also seeing how these regulatory bodies, you can create the best legislation in the world, but if these regulatory bodies are not well-funded consistently over time, as you mentioned, if they're not well-staffed and you don't have that that momentum over time, it really doesn't matter. You need all of those things together. So if I were to design an ideal regulatory system, I would say follow the lead of the European Union. That seems to be working for them. It's not perfect, but it's a good start. Look at what's happening over in California. 
So California is collecting information on toxic substances. They have Proposition 65, which requires manufacturers to list any problematic chemicals that are in their products. And as a result, they actually have a lot of information about how to assess risks from chemicals. So we don't have to start from scratch to see like, you know, is like DDT dangerous or not. So there's a lot of information out there already. I think regulators could use that. They could reform the risk assessment system to be more precautionary. And then use government agencies, give them the money that they need, give them the staff that they need, cut some of that red tape, streamline the process a little bit more, and that will give you a much better system. Now I say that, (laughs) but in actual practice, it is going to take so much work. Because another thing I found is that there are so many different regulatory agencies that are involved and they all kind of overlap a little bit and there are different pieces of legislation that they have to follow. And it's kind of a mess. So there are days when I think, you know what, we just need to tear it all down, get rid of everything and then build it right back up from scratch. I think Mm. that would do a far better job rather than try to like tinker around the edges of what already exists. So who do you think needs to be held accountable in our current system? Industry absolutely has to be held accountable. Like in our conversation, I've been putting a lot of emphasis on government, but industry, and that's, you know, that's a big group right there. But I'm talking about the people who are innovating, who are making new chemicals for consumer products or for food production, the folks who are making those products, who are distributing them. And in fact, because of how global capitalism works, these are actually many of the same very large companies who are doing this. They bear a lot of this responsibility because there is a way to create compounds that prioritizes health and the environment in the design process, in the innovation process. That's what we do at JVN here. Good. (laughs) It literally is. Like, we Mm -hmm. literally, because, like, when I first got into beauty, I thought that synthetic meant bad. Then I learned about, like, biosons and squalane. And, like, really, like, squalane historically has come from, like, shark liver or, like, olives. And obviously, you don't want to be killing shark livers. And then olives, like, be, like, global warming. And then, like, the amount of processes that, like, olive squalane needs to go through, like, to take, like, the color out of it so that Mm. it can, like, play well with other ingredients and, like, last longer and stuff. But then these biochemists, like, invented this, like, molecular copy of squalane and then hemisqualane, which is, like, a half-size molecule. But it comes from this, like, sustainable sourced sugarcane that's, like, endemic to northern Brazil. Mm. So, like, there's no forest clearing for it. It, like, goes off the water, like, from the rain because it's endemic to there. And, like, all of the squalane that we make for, like, all of our companies is literally grown from, like, a piece of land that's, like, a tenth of the size of Central Park. Like, it's really little and we're able to make but it's like the other thing that's kind of been nice for us is that like we're kind of like a littler boat so it's easier to like turn a littler boat versus when you have like a fucking huge barge of like a gajillion old factories and like i mean not you know excusing anyone it's just like easier if you're a little smaller because you can be a little bit more nimble and you happen to find uh like a source of is it squalene yeah yeah you've you've found a source of squalene that works the way you want it to. So like an example of something that's just really hard is that we do need compounds that keep things from burning up, right? Like our electronics, they're fire hazards. And so they have all kinds of chemicals in them to keep them from bursting into flame. And that's really important. (laughs) We want that. But it is hard to find a compound that will effectively, you know, act as a flame retardant and not be toxic to the environment or to humans. Sometimes those very properties that make it chemically useful are what make it persistent. It doesn't break down. And because it doesn't break down, it like builds up in your tissues and in the food chain. Yeah. Silicones, they don't really degrade. Um, So interesting. We don't use silicones. (sighs) So as long as we like are in this 
capitalistic world, you know, honestly, who knows? We really could be Gilead in like three and a half weeks. Like, so we, it could be yeah. a full restructure, you know? So as long as we are working within the system we have, how would you recommend listeners approach consumer choice? Like, how can we be more attentive shoppers? Yeah, that. let's start there. How can we okay. be more attentive shoppers? Well, the first thing I would say is that like guilt is a huge problem with precautionary consumption because when you know that you could be making a better choice, but you're either too stressed, you don't have time, you don't have the money, there's a lot of guilt. So my first message is take a deep breath. It is not all on you. This is a systemic problem and you as an individual can only do so much. So pick what you can handle. And if you want help, there are good resources out there. The EWG is really one of the best resources that I've found. They have a database where you can look up different consumer products and beauty products. They also have just practical advice if you're on a budget and you want to reduce your exposure to toxics. You could also look at Mind the Store. They rate and give grades to different retailers and see which retailers are doing better. And some of those retailers are super accessible here in the United States. You will find that you can find all kinds of eco-friendly stuff and the, the price difference isn't outrageous. And that's important. Yeah, it is because it's like giving more accessibility. So yeah. I love that. And then like what labels or certifications should we seek out that you seek out? So I look at organic because the certification system is really transparent. We know what we're getting when we certify something organic and USDA organic is, is a solid certification system. It's not perfect, but it's pretty good. There is some organic fraud out there. Um, You know, I'm not really the one to talk about it. I, I don't know enough about it, but it does exist. But I look at USDA organic. I try to avoid plastic when I can because it's an endocrine disruptor it's really the compounds that go into making plastic that are endocrine disruptors. But there are lots of times where I'm like, you know what? I just need this. Or I'm on a professor income. Like I'm not buying all organic stuff for my family. It's just, it's, that's not happening. And I, I try to cut myself a little bit of slack. If I can buy more locally, like I can buy locally sourced meats or fruits and vegetables, I try to do that. But I generally just try to take some pressure off of myself to know that I can't do all of this on my own. That's important. And it's, it's, it's important for people to hear. So what are your hopes for the science and sociology of toxic exposure? I guess when I hear that question, I think, you know, we have so much science and we do have a lot of good sociology happening and policy analysis and that that's happening. We're already doing a great job of that. What I want to see is a change in industry practices. I want to see industry not only change their practices, but stop lying. Like we found out through lawsuits that industry has a vested interest in concealing when they've discovered that something is harmful to human health. And so You know, I I would like our attention to be put on that and on things like green chemistry, like creating compounds where it's part of the logic of innovation and production, we're prioritizing health and the environment. Like, I'd like to see loads of money put into that. But I think, you know, that the sociology and science of precautionary consumption is going to continue to develop and continue to move. And I think it's moving in really good directions. So, like... You obviously love the movie Aaron Brockovich, right? Yeah, it's been a long time since I've seen it, but yes, oh, of Such course. a classic. And you said you had kids? <laughs> yeah. You know, one of the biggest threats to our future society that I see as a podcast host and like public figure is that these fucking damn kids don't know about fucking Aaron Brockovich anymore. I am not a parent, but I am a leader. And this is my parting message for you. You haven't seen Aaron Brockovich you need to see it. If you have not read any of Nora's work, you need to read it. You need to follow her. You need to be following this work. And my final question for you is, what's next for you and for your work? A project I've been working on lately is looking at this concept of hormone balance, which comes from my interest in endocrine disruptors and how the science and regulation of endocrine disruptors is changing. And I'm seeing increasingly in the wellness space this emphasis on hormone balance, like hormone balance will lead to, you know, this wonderful thing or that wonderful thing. So I wondered, you know, do doctors talk about a hormone balance? Is this a thing? So I've been looking at self-help books written by doctors to understand how they 
frame and understand hormone balance. And what I find is that in the self-help world is a really bizarre place where very traditional ideas about gender and beauty and health are being shared and reproduced. And so my work is showing that, you know, hormone balance basically means conforming to hegemonic femininity or hegemonic masculinity, meaning like being sort of like the very traditionally feminine and very traditionally masculine. And if you appear that way, then your hormones are balanced. So that's been kind of an interesting um, deep dive for me. Mm. It's giving Brittany Aldine. It's giving, yes. Good luck with that. Uh, we want to know how it goes. We love that's important work to see the ways that patriarchy like and misogyny like seeps into fucking everything, no matter what. Just really, <laughs> including medicine. Yeah. yeah, including medicine, like literally fucking everything. These fuckers are testing me. Uh, I, you know, but it's fine. Nora, we love you so much and your work. It's incredible. Where are you active? Are you like active on the Twitter? Are you active on the gram? So I'm active on Twitter. And then I have, um, when it comes to Instagram, I'm trying my hand at like creating more sort of green advice for people. That's partly around this message of relax, but partly around this message of like, if you want someone to help you do these things, like no one knows more than I do. Nora, we're so grateful for you and your work. Thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yes, You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Nora McKendrick. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Curious with JBN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Ghetto, and Zara Krim. 